Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Angela Bishop, and for the past 30 years, I've been lucky enough to interview some of the funniest, loveliest, and zaniest celebrities around. There have been some cracker interviews, but what you see on TV is usually just a fraction of what's actually recorded. Find out what went off before the cameras went on. This is Starstruck with me, Ange Fisher. From playing one of the first openly gay characters on network television in the 1970s to that unforgettable scene from When Harry Met Sally, Billy Crystal's career has spanned more than 40 years. Billy was in Australia in 2016 when he travelled here with his sit-down tour, so it seemed like an appropriate thing to do to sit down and have a chat to him. But that wasn't the first time I've sat down with Billy Crystal, but one of the most memorable times was at a very fancy pants restaurant in New York City called Nobu, owned by a good mate of Billy's, Robert De Niro. And uh, look, suffice to say the anecdote involves Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, Molly Meldrum and me. Listen out for it. Here's my chat with Billy Crystal. What do you love about performing in front of a live audience? What the energy. I just I lo- I love being able to perform, make them laugh, make them feel something, whatever it may be. It, it, there's nothing like it. It's always been my f- really first love is to be out live. You know, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that you can say or do or do something that makes a physical response happen in somebody. Yeah. Like when they they make a noise. <laughs> you make them do that it's kind of great and does their reaction sometimes bring another reaction in you do you change material based on reactions oh sure from oh yeah and... it makes your mind think and that's yeah. that's the you know I've often been asked what's your greatest possession your favorite possession I want my imagination you know so when it goes it's really hard to almost to describe the euphoria that happens and the little connections that happen really fast and you just it's just like this computer going wild and it's it's like fantastic but I, I don't like to talk about it that much because I, I don't know how to explain it. Lou, yeah. I remember Louis Armstrong once said, they asked him about his music. He said, well, if I have to explain it to you, I shouldn't be playing. So, yeah. So didn't it's, didn't it's, your mum once say to Louis Armstrong something about cough it up? No, it was my grandmother. <laughs> it was your grandmother. Yeah. Louis, have you tried just coughing it up? <laughs> For those who don't know what we're talking about, but there was, my family was in the music business and... My, my dad produced great jazz concerts, and my uncle produced amazing records. And Louis Armstrong was sort of like the, the big, big, obviously one of the greatest stars of all time. And he was over during a holiday, and my grandmother said that to him, have you tried just coughing it up? <laughs> <laughs> a magical memory. Back to live audiences, though. When, when you're working at a stand-up routine or something like that, you'd still go to little clubs and smaller No, clubs? I haven't done that in a long, long time. And, and, and it's worse now. Because if I was going to go to work out a routine, someone's going to have a phone. Yeah. 
and someone's going to tweet it out, and someone's going to ruin it, someone's going to take offense to it when it's not ready to be seen. To me, the clubs were, they were gymnasiums. It was a place to work out, to take a piece of material and, and start the, the carpentry on it, start honing it, polishing it, reshaping it, tearing it down, building it back. That's what it is. If you do it right, that's what the clubs are for. The entertaining comes, all right, that's with it, but it's a process. And now, you know, I, I, you know, I was talking to Chris Rock about it too. He said it's really hard to do it because people are going to ruin it. It's going to get out there and then it's around the world before it's ready to be. And there's going to be somebody who's going to go, well, what did he say that for? And then and there's some haters are going to press send, and then it's, it ruins it for you. So I like the danger of going out there with confidence and just doing it. And that's what we'll do. I mean, there might be some hit and miss, but it uh, makes it much more fascinating to me. Especially when I was doing the Oscars regularly, <clears throat> I never practiced the material in front of an audience before I went out. Never? No. I didn't want to give the jokes away. Wow. And that's before social media. I only did one where there was social media. And I liked the danger of it. I thought it was, pardon the expression, sexy. Yeah, no. Like, that you go out there and you go, uh, you say it for the first time, hit or miss. You know, it was good. Do you think that's the secret? I mean, nine Oscars you hosted. Is that the secret to, to why you do it so well? Because so many people get it so wrong. Oh, I don't, I don't know what, who gets it right or wrong. Ever, I, you know, oh, it's a hard job. It's a very hard job. I, I was so well prepared and so ready for anything that might happen during the show with contingencies. And if this guy wins, I could say that. If, if she loses, I could say this. If this if the whole, and you, you keep your fingers crossed that something cool is going to happen, like when Mr. Palance came, got on stage and did the one-on push-ups, or when Hal Roach, who was 100 years old, was in the audience and started talking without a microphone. You, you hope something like that can happen. And, and fortunately, I was able to capitalize on it. You know, But that, that comes from at that point in my life was coming from years and years of going to the gym and building up the muscle to be able to handle a situation. A couple of Aussies have given it a go over the years, Hugh Jackman and way back in the day even Paul Hogan did it and the Crocodile Dundee. He days. did? I didn't Yeah, well, many, many years ago. And we look up with such pride, but it is, it's the hardest gig in the world, isn't it? It's a, it's a pretty thankless job too, you know, if it's good, it's really good and if it didn't go well you gets killed you know it's a lot on you on someone's shoulders whoever does it and a lot of people have done it very well would you do it again i don't know i i didn't know when you come to australia you brought your show 700 sundays to australia and the subject matter um i've i've heard you speak of you weren't you weren't sure how it was all going to going to play down here it had done you know you won a tony or broadway had done great there is there anything about australia that you find fascinating that you work into the show do we do we form some of your material do you well, find um, anything well, odd about it i found that the i was shocked how amazing the audiences were um, only because it was new to me you know it was um, it was a story of an american family who happened to be jewish that's what i was brought up in but yet it didn't matter you know, it didn't matter on Broadway. People of all kinds came to the show. Here, it was embraced by everybody in a universal way that they appreciated the, the fact that, all right, well, we were raised down here and, and we're Italian or we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're Aussies or we're, yeah. and we get it. We get it. People have parents. People grow up. People lose their parents. It's life. And that's what 700 Sundays touched so strongly down here. 
You've made so many great movies, from The Princess Bride to The City Slickers to When Harry Met Sally. And what often happens with movies like that is fans will see you in the street and quote their favourite lines back to you. What, what do you get the most? Which line? Uh, well, it depends whether they've been on television recently or not. I used to get a lot of, uh, I'll have what she's having. Occasionally I get, have fun storming the castle <laughs> from Princess Bride. I get a lot of stuff from Saturday Night Live that perhaps you wouldn't get down here. I don't know if they saw that year that I was on. Yeah. I got a lot of You Look Marvelouses, which was a character that I did on SNL. And then once in a while, somebody will hit you with a little more esoteric one. I'm in a wonderful little movie called This Is Spinal Tap. Yes. I play this mime who was a caterer at a catering company. And I yell at the young waiter at this rock and roll party, come on, move it, mime is money. <laughs> and and that, that caught on. So it, I'm just glad that people still want to see me. <laughs> you mentioned I'll have what she's having. No one comes up and actually fakes an orgasm in front of you, I hope, on the street. Cause that could be oh, no, that's happened. That has happened. Oh, sure. That's happened in restaurants. Oh, for a while it was like it happened a lot. How awkward. Oh, just it's, it's, <laughs> it's awkward because my wife is with me and my kids. <laughs> and, and I said to the guy, I said, sir, a woman played that part. <laughs> I love it. Way back when, you were in a TV comedy called Soap. Right, it was the first thing I did. And you played Jody Dallas. And in 1977, he was an openly gay character. Right. That must have been groundbreaking. What were the pros and cons of playing that character for you? And did people people say you shouldn't do this? It would be bad for your career. um, There was a lot of, what do you need that for? It wasn't about the gay thing. What do you need to be in a series right now? I was just really starting to grow as a stand-up. Yeah. And then, obviously, the gay part of, um, you know, Jody was uh, incredibly provocative and, you know, this is almost 40 years ago on network television and, you know, and, and, uh, all right, how do you, as great as Carol O'Connor was, people would yell Archie when they see him in person. You know, you are who they they see and, you know, I didn't want to be the gay guy from Soap, so I was always... I was doing the Johnny Carson show, I was doing other things, I thought, well, that'll sort of, you know, and it didn't at times. That was a con, a little bit. The pros were, it was a great character to play. Once we got it right, and he became a little confused at times, he was very proud of who he was, he fathered a child, Um, and I think it was like the third year of the show, they had a poll national poll, should Jody Dallas get his baby? Because there was a court case on this series. And three to one, people voted that Jody should get his child. And that was in the late 70s. And I thought, well, that's pretty freaking great. When I look back, that was that really made me feel good. So there was confusion as the character, and people were mad that it was too effeminate in the beginning. And we, you grow in a part, and it became pretty solid. And you were breaking new ground. So that's one of the pros. And a big pro of it was I worked with amazing people, a greatest cast. And some of them are gone now. Robert Guillaume is... Uh, Bob Guillaume was fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's, Bob's still, gone, uh, still around, thank God. But uh, Richard Mulligan, Catherine Damon, who played my mother, uh, Catherine Hellman, Bob Mandan. There were some amazing people on that show. Television's where it's at now, isn't it? Everything's happening on television. All yeah. The, all the the best things. Would you think of doing this sort of this sort of talking thing as as you telling stories? Do you think there's still a place for that on television? I would hope there would be. I would I would really you know I've thought about it. 
like a once a week yeah Sunday night let's what happened this week yeah. kind of thing I could really like doing I think yes I would like to watch when I I like to watch when we <laughs> when I was a kid there was in America there was um, a great he was a producer but he had a great TV show his name was David Suskind oh yeah yeah and Suskind had a show on Sunday night on a public television and he would have thematic shows so one one week it would be military, but the next week would be an entertainment show. And he was always funny and he was always interesting. And it was great. What I see now when, you know, when the talk shows are the talk shows, and Jimmy Fallon's doing a great job, yeah. James Corden is doing a great job, Jimmy Kimmel's really funny, um, Colbert. But no one, where's just a straight interview show? The other shows, like The Daily Show and John Oliver's show, are rants, and they're fantastic at it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind having a, to be able to sit down and talk with fascinating people and, and iconic people in front of a live audience. You know, that would be great. Yeah, I would like to watch that. Tell your friends. <laughs> Tell your friends, we'll, we'll get that, we'll get that happening. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Do you long for the times with the movies you've made? Do you long for the days when movies didn't have to have capes in them to be made? Didn't have to have what? Capes. Capes, yeah. No, but they, listen, there's a great place for that. It shouldn't be the only thing that we run to see these big event 200 million dollar budgets mm. you know mm. I was I make movies that are about people and romance or their frailties or try to make interesting stories and those for whatever reasons even though that they don't cost a lot of money to make they're reluctant to make them because they don't make enough back and you know we had a little movie a couple of years ago uh, that did great here in Australia called Parental Guidance with yes. Bette Midler and I. It was a really sweet movie about grandparents trying to get to know their grandchildren that they don't see a lot. And it was human. Yeah. And we did worldwide. We made like $150 million. So why won't they make, make another one? Yeah. You know, it's, so it's, there's a, for me, that's a, that's a frustration because there's a, there's a bunch of ideas and things that I've written that I'd love to get done. And it's hard to get them done now. And that's frustrating. You don't sound like you're ever going to give up. No, I love what I'm doing. And you've also been married for 165 showbiz years. 166 years. Yeah. Yeah. Secret? We're still dating. Oh, nice. Yeah. It was, we're four, we just had a 46th anniversary, June 4th. July 27th is a, the 50th anniversary of our first date. Oh, is she here with you? Janice is not here with me. She's, she's, so you're going to be apart? Yeah, we'll be more than like, I have a feeling she's going to come. But she's traveling with her mom now. They're having a mother-daughter trip oh, together nice. this summer. So, um, yeah, yeah. Is it a secret? We, we just really love being with each other. We always have. I smile talking about it. You do? Yeah. You genuinely smile oh, talking yeah. about it. No, we were texting all morning, which was like hilarious, because <laughs> it's uh, seven hours and a day earlier there, or later there. 
So I was on the local news this morning and taking pictures on the set. Look where I am, and you know. But that's what's that's what I think that's what works is we laugh. She really makes me laugh because I'm not a big laugher. If I watch comedians, so it's basically funny. I hear it, I study it, and she really makes me laugh. Oh, that's wonderful. A lot of comedians, or some comedians, I won't I won't generalize, draw their um, find pain a source of humour as some darkness within themselves. That's not the case for you, I get this. Oh, you know, that's what 700 Sundays was. You know, that was about overcoming grief. There was um, trying to put a humorous but honest face on how hard life was for me when I was 15. And then again, when I was in my early 50s, when I lost my mother, you know, it's, it's that time in your life where this is going to happen. And you don't like to face it, but it, 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 this is in the play, and it happened, and yeah. suddenly it's that phenomenon of, oh, my God, I'm 54 and I'm an orphan. Now what? How do I, you know, where are they? Where It makes you think and it makes you, you don't feel what I said in the play. You're not quite tethered to the earth in the same way. You know, and even though you're, in, you know, you're having your own life and, and your own fears and something, you still somehow need your folks. It'd be great to have them around all the time. So that, that's what I wrote about. And that's anything in my stand-up comes hopefully from a, a real place. Yeah. You know? Which is why your eulogy at Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral recently was Joe Memorial was just incredible. You were coming from a place of pain. Everyone was was missing him, but you made us laugh. You made us laugh at, at memories of him, which is the best way to think of him because he was funny. And you two had this 42-year bond. It was awesome to me that I knew him in the way that I did. If I had just met him that one time in 1974 and performed for him, and that would have been, like, amazing. The fact that it stuck and that we we became really good friends and family friends... It's amazing to me. Yeah. You know, getting back to Janice, we sat there one, the Friday before, the week before, and I was notified that it was looking bad and they were going to be taking him off life support. I posted a video of this piece that I did called 15 Rounds. Which I watched. And no one, no one had seen that version of it since 1979. Wow. The producer that night put Ali in an isolated camera so he was watching me play him throughout his life, you know? And so I, I knew he was gonna not make it through the day. And so I said, this is for the greatest man I've ever met. And then I was notified that he had wanted me to be one of the eulogists. Of all the people in his life, he wanted me to be one of them. And I know he would want me to be humorous. 100%. And you know, that first, that 74 event, 1974, started, really started my career going. I was a brand new comedian, and I got by chance this chance to perform for him on this this television special, and it started me out. And Janice and I that night it was like a huge thing for us that that had happened. You know, I was like, oh my God, I was on television. And did you see how Wally he called me his little brother? And then it was like such a we were so young and excited, and and now here we were. He's gone, and I'm sitting next to President Clinton. Janice is on my right, and we're at this world event for this amazing man, and we just, we, we both thought it at the same time, and we just held hands, and it was like, do you believe this? And that made it, e not easy, but that relaxed me to do what I had to do. Was that one of the few times you really were nervous? I wasn't nervous. 
I was, I was uh, very focused. What I was nervous about was getting back to the clubs. <laughs> you go to the club, you have something on your mind that you want to work on, yeah. and you hope that another comic doesn't mention anything that you're going to do because it ruins it. Yeah, gotcha. It stains it. Yep. It's, it's, there's already a foot in the pond, you know? And it was three hours worth before I was wow. going to go on. And everybody did way too long. You, everyone said, you have three minutes, you have three minutes. And the president and I were supposed to speak for 10 minutes. Everybody ran way long. And I'm sitting there going, calm down, it's fine. And then the gentleman who spoke before me, who I had not met, does an imitation of Ali. And I went, oh, no, I don't know. No, no, not now. And I had to, like, breathe. And I would, and, but when I went up there, I don't know, I felt this calmness. I, I liked what I had written. I liked sharing the stories, the real stories uh, of the bond of this amazing man, amazing black Muslim man, and this his white Jewish friend. Yeah, incredible. And, and I just talked honestly about it. And then, you know, a very powerful summation of what I thought he was for America. And, you know, I'm... <laughs> It's so funny. You know, you do, I've been fortunate to do some nice work in movies and be known for that or whatever. The, I mentioned the Oscars and all this stuff. When it comes down to a eulogy that went around the world, it's kind of, it's like, it blew my mind. And will live on in history, I think. I think definitely. Humor is right for any situation. We need some at the moment with the political situation here in Australia. I think perhaps you might need some in the United States too, come as we approach November. Any situation is really good for humour, isn't it? Is there anything that's off limits for you? Cruelty. Right, yeah. Don't actually take a dig. Don't actually be nasty. Just before we go, I want to share a magical moment that you've given me. Really? 1998, Nobu Restaurant, New York City, Robert De Niro's joint downtown. Yes. You and a good buddy of yours were trying to have a quiet dinner. And I was at uh, dinner with an Australian celebrity called Molly Meldrum, always wears a hat. And he convinced me that you two, you and Robin Williams, would not mind if he and I came over to your table, said g'day, and just had a little bit of a chat. And I said, oh, I don't think so. They're having a quiet dinner. Let's leave the gentlemen on their own to mind their own. He goes, no, 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 we're coming over, we're coming over. Not only were you generous enough to say hello to us, you invited us to sit down and chat to us for 15, 20 minutes about the world and everything. You were at, we were in stitches. It is one of the most magical moments of my life. There is the photo of the three of us, of you, me and Robin, that night. Oh, my God. 1998, New York. Have a bit of a look. Oh, my and God. And I just wanted to say um, thank you. I, I laughed. It's one of my favourite moments of, of anything that's happened in my life. It was just so surreal. And you were so generous. I mean, you literally were trying to eat your dinner. And these two mad Australians came down and, and you riffed about Australia and you riffed and you were just divine. So thank you. Well, thank you. Wow, how great. Oh, man, special guy. Such a, such a terrible loss for everybody. You know, I'm so I'm glad you had a great, you had that moment. And I, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's so sweet. Oh, it's true. From the heart. I really appreciate that. It's one of the most treasured photos I have. Over the years, I was lucky enough to interview Robin Williams a bunch of times. And on one of those occasions, I brought the photo in and he was good enough to sign it for me. I then brought the photo to the Billy Crystal interview. And of course, this was after Robin had passed. And he got a little bit teary, I have to confess, when looking at the photo, as do I quite often. 
Anyway, Billy was kind enough to write on my photograph, Dear Angela, always great to catch up and thanks again for picking up the cheque that night. Love, Billy Crystal. Thanks for listening. I'm Ange Bishop and this has been Starstruck, a Studio 10 podcast for 10 speakers. Monty, where are you? Look, I'm pretty ready to leave, actually. Sorry, Stu. Where the hell have you been? I've been waiting here to record this promo with you for half an hour. I only booked the studio till four. I was cooking brisket. Uh, I may have chosen a poor time. Look, Hugh Rimmington and Peter Van Onselen are going to be here any minute to record the latest episode of The Professor and the Hack, which, of course, I don't need to tell you, is a frank and honest look at politics from two respected voices in the game. Of course you don't need to tell me that, nor do you need to tell me that it's available on Acast, Apple, Spotify, and any other great pod platform, and that I should probably subscribe to get all the episodes updated automatically, and rate, five stars, preferably. All right, all right, hurry up, sit down, we might be able to squeeze a minute in here before they... Are you two idiots finished yet? Come on, guys. All right, all right, sorry, Hugh, PVO, we'll get out of your way, it's Monty's fault. Would you guys like some brisket? I've got lots. Just pick your brisket up and walk outside, mate. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.